Hey everybody, it's your Killer Country. My name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast of deep dives into the killers we love to learn about. Every week, Brian and I will discuss two true crime stories that resonated with us, and then I will lead you down the dark path of learning about who a killer was, how they grew up, how they killed, and most importantly, how they got caught. Then Brian will slow things down for us and give us a walk through the creepier side of life with a discussion of the paranormal. And one, thanks so much for all the really kind words uh, this past week. I did have a bit of a meltdown, uh, <laughs> which I, I mentioned to people on TikTok and they were like, it's okay to take a break. Like true crime is a really heavy topic. And I'm like, you don't know the half of it. Uh, <laughs> being the person who has to read all the stories, it does bring it. But there were a lot of really kind messages that I got this week. So thank you so much for being understanding. And uh, still like 800 people still listen to just Brian this week. So that's hey. like on general half to uh, like 40% of our general listenership. So still good numbers. <laughs> so thank you for listening. Uh, and we don't have any like merch or things to drop this week. So no. let's just start with this week in true crime. So Brian, you okay. heard about the, t- you heard about the Tinder swindler, didn't you? I, I heard about Tinder swindler. Oh, yes. Well, make way. For the Casanova scammer, who is currently facing jail time for defrauding over 30 women, $1.3 million via dating apps. Apparently, he posed as a doctor for about five years, promising to pay off victims' loans. And so I guess he was convincing them that he needed money for his uh, private, we call that doctor like his private doctor's office. Right. Um, but on top of that, the loans that he, you know, kind of coerced them to help him with, he was also giving cash presents, gifts like Rolex watches up to $14,000, very nice tickets to football games. Hmm. Um, this happened in Florida. Of course. And uh, the Florida Justice Department just released the information about this. His name is Brian Brainerd Wedgworth. He's from Tallahassee. Uh, and there was, there was the whole aspect of him asking for loans to help with his business. And then once he gets back on his feet, he would pay them back. But then he also was defrauding women through convincing them that he was in love with them. And he had a whole rotation and those women were sending him money, watches, jewelry, uh, any kind of gifts he asked for. He's 46 years old and he got arrested in November. Um, we talked about this a little bit before, like very briefly when it first happened. Right. Um, because he's also in trouble for wire fraud, mail fraud, identity theft, and money laundering. Okay. Um, and he used every app. Plenty of fifth, plenty of fish, hinge, Christian mingle, elite singles. Um, he also would promise like, you know, women who had college debt that he would help them pay off their debt, which is hilarious. Um, because you don't have no money. How are you offering to help either people? But apparently the part of that con was that he would get the woman to give up her social and her information to log into her student loan account. And then he would just steal her identity. Yeah. And so in his attempt to hide things, he committed the wire fraud and mail fraud and the money laundering. So, uh, He's used more than a dozen different names. At one point, he was Dr. Edward Chen. He was Dr. Brian Wilson. 
He has claimed that he went to every prestigious college, Harvard Medical School, Duke University. Uh, The U.S. Justice Department says that he's facing 20 years in prison on those wire fraud charges, 10 years for money laundering, and a minimum mandatory sentence of two years on top of that. Um, the U.S. attorney for the North District of Florida said our citizens should not be paid, preyed upon by fraudsters who steal through overtures of affection. With the assistance of our dedicated law enforcement partners, we are committed to investigating and vigorously prosecuting those who engage in all acts of fraud. And so he is, like I said, he got arrested in November. Uh, I believe when we talked about it before, he was trying to like leave. Uh, that we're sending money to a different country and then trying to send it back. It's all sorts of crazy. And here's what's wild about this. If he had just stuck to telling the women like, oh, like, I love you. Send me presents. He would never have gotten arrested. <laughs> no, if he had just collected like the $14,000 watches and the fancy necklaces and the, the tickets, he could have yeah. sold that stuff off and made a, a, a fortune. But it, it was when he did the identity theft and the wiring the money to another country to then wire it back that got him the 20 years. Yeah. I, I just laugh because it's like they, they just get greedy. They get greedy and... Isn't that it? It's always that. They always get greedy and that's how yep. you get caught. And so mm-hmm. I just... Anyone listening, because I know that there are a lot of young women between the ages of like 18 and 24 who listen to this podcast... Don't send nobody nothing. No money, okay? Nothing. I'm sure if they listen to this podcast, (laughs) they're very suspicious of people already. You should. I hope y'all are. I really do. Because, (laughs) like, no, don't. And listen, there's also a, a, a chunk of people who are between 40 and 60 who listen. Don't send nobody nothing over the internet, y'all. Okay, I know yeah, y'all are in the boomer age range, right on the cusp, heading into boomer town. Don't Just send do people it. money over the internet, y'all. Nothing, nothing. Doesn't matter. Oh, I'm so. St-. Listen, I tell you the truth. Um, the first time somebody asked me for money on like randomly on the internet, I just block them. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't care if we've been having conversations for a couple weeks. Oh, you know, my cell phone's gonna get turned off. That's so bad for you. I feel bad for you, honey. Because I, well, I'm running into the issue right now where. People think that I'm famous and just a heads up. I'm not. I'm also not rich. <laughs> we, we just make and buy with this podcast life. Uh, <laughs> we doing all right. <laughs> we not doing that. All right. Yeah, uh, and so people think that because I have this platform and everything that I must be making money and I will get random just messages on Facebook, whole long stories like, oh, I'm losing my house. And I'm just like, honey, I... I'm like a month. I, I'm I'm a month behind you. <laughs> you about to get evicted? I would be if I didn't pay for one month. This is this like everything's going up in price these days. So everybody's struggling. You know what I mean? But don't give anybody money. Doesn't matter what the the sob story is. If you've not met them in person and developed a relationship with them, and I'm also say something else here. Just because you've had sex doesn't mean y'all have a relationship. Oh. There, are, that's what the Tinder swindler was meeting girls and uh, having full blown in person relationships and still robbed all those ladies blind. Right, so, yeah. it, my like, once you it like add the whole money concept to a relationship, you better make sure your relationship is strong, or you don't want that money back because relationships get destroyed over cash. This is true. Well, that's what I'm done. What are you telling us about today, Brian? 
Well, you talked about some um, wire fraud. I'm going to talk about some wire fraud. Okay. So, I don't know if this name sounds familiar to anybody, but um, Austin St. John? Yes, actually. Yes? The St. John name sounds familiar. Well, many of my 90 kids, 90s kids, would remember him as the Red Ranger in the Mighty Morphin oh, Power Rangers. Tommy! No, not Tommy. I thought Tommy was red. Tommy... Tommy was the Green Ranger and the White Ranger. Oh, okay. See, I thought Red went into White. It's been a long time. But yeah, what I, is his name? Wait, he used to like go to like all the conventions and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did go to all the uh, conventions. You're damn right. He did. Yeah. Um. He's yeah. got a. He committed wire fraud. Yeah. Yeah. His wow. name. His name in Power Rangers was uh, Jason. Um, Jason. Okay. Sorry. Yep. Yep. Jason's Red. Tommy. Tommy became the White Ranger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he was uh, taken by agents from his house um, earlier this earlier, I guess, last week. Um, and yeah, it was um, he was he committed wire fraud in a very large criminal case. Um, it's, uh, it was apparently uh, COVID nineteen relief loans for small businesses. Oh, I knew they were going to start getting people on those. Yeah, and people request. I mean, because uh, I think like there's a situation that Jeffrey Star requested like a tremendous amount of money, even mm. though he um still made profit during like COVID. And I'm like, I don't think that's how that was supposed to work. <laughs> this was supposed to help you because nobody could work no one was buying anything yeah yeah and, like yeah. If people were still buying your stuff you were still making money yeah so you could pay your people but since yeah but if they weren't then yeah they so didn't make any what sense. kind of business did he say he was running then um it doesn't say it I'm just said yeah, yeah I, I guess you can i don't know it was just one of those um wait no, it doesn't say. I was going to say, it, it was just like one of those relief loans places, I guess. Oh, wait. He was the person trying to give people relief money? It, he was involved in a COVID-19 relief loan for small businesses, is what it says. So okay, maybe yeah. he was like getting the money from people. Like Yeah, those are the PPP loans. Those are the ones that they're finally now having the time to investigate and make yeah. sure that you actually need the money. Yep, and since I guess he did not need the money. Yeah, it's a paycheck protection program, so you could still pay your employees. Yeah, my um, job didn't have to do that because we literally got furloughed, technically. Yeah. Um. So yeah, he apparently uh, scammed about three point five million dollars out of these people, and I guess it's like a twenty year sentence for him. Um. Yeah. I just Googled his name and it was the first thing that came up. And then also 16 different business loans. Yes. 16 loans. Okay. Yeah. He was really trying to scan the system. Yeah. 16 over a two year period. Bro. What were you doing? (laughs) 
Yeah, no, he's this is definitely just straight fraud. See, I was worried because I did have a business during that time, but I was scared. I was just like, it's only me. Can I give myself a PPP loan? But I was like, this is, this is too scary. I'm not going to do it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's funny because this is the second Red Ranger who has gotten in trouble, apparently. I do from, from know what about I've heard. that guy. The other guy killed somebody or did he just yeah. him? Yeah, we were talking about that over D&D this weekend and I was like, what yeah. the fuck? <laughs> Yeah, I do know that one. He, he killed somebody. Yeah, and I was like, oh and, my god. And in a true nerd fashion, with a sword. I mean, of course. That's the only way you should kill somebody. Nerds, sword. we don't have guns in our homes, but we do have knives. There's no lies, but, you know. <laughs> that's why I used to protect the home, okay? I got swords. That's all, that's, that's all I need. Uh, apparently it is all you need but uh we're so this week i did uh hint on other forms of social media that we are tackling the monstrosity that is charles manson and the reason why we're doing that is it occurred to me when i started working on these a few these notes a couple weeks ago that uh, we crossed the 60 episode threshold and I never told you all what got me into true crime in the first place. And so I'm just going to kind of quickly explain how this happened. So when I was a kid, uh, my parents believed in the concept of every book is a children's book if the kid can read. Um, so like circa 1999, I was like 12 years old. And so if my dad had like a errand he wanted to run. And he knew I was going to be a pain because I didn't really want to be in Home Depot. He'd be like, you want to go to the library while I run a Home Depot? And I'd be like, of course. And so I would go in, find piles of books, me and the library, very close. Uh, there were only three things I liked. Only two things I liked more than the library, which was the Backstreet Boys and SimCity. Mm-hmm. So my library was pretty old. Uh, actually, a couple years after this, they would close this building down build a whole new one with fancy shiny new books so it had a lot of old books in it and it, they were kind of you know like dingy like stuff from like the 50s and on and they had a corner it wasn't very big it was everything that you would call unsavory the occult supernatural <laughs> murder <laughs> the occult. So, Loved it. yes <laughs> so i'm over in that corner and i find a book called helter skelter and it was the original 70s edition. And I started reading it in the library. And I had to return it originally and pick up my own copy. It was actually the longest book I'd ever read at that time at over like 600 pages. Uh, and I became a little obsessed with the story around Charles Manson. He was the first person who I was just like, I want to know why. And even hmm. then, with my child understanding of this, there was a more that I learned about him preparing for this podcast. He's a, he was something. That's all we're going to say here. (laughs) But before I discuss Charles, I have to talk to you about like where he came from. So Charles had a fundamentalist Christian grandmother. Her name was Nancy Ingram. Nancy was born in Kentucky and she was raised in the backwoods. So very country. And she was very about Jesus. She was the kind of woman who believed that the Bible was a hundred percent true from Adam and Eve and the serpent all the way to revelations. And unlike a lot of fundamentalists, though, uh, Nancy kind of kept her beliefs to herself and her neighbors really liked her and nobody had anything bad to say about her. 
She did everything the good book told her to, and she stayed very pure until she got married to her husband, Charles Miles Maddox. He made good money, he was a solid husband, and she did her best to be a good wife. In 1911, they had Glenna. In 1913, they had their daughter Eileen. 1915, Luther, and then Ada Kathleen in 1918. Ada would go on to be Charles Manson's mother. Now, when uh, Ada Kathleen was 10, the family moved to Ashland, Ohio. Uh, And Ashland, Ohio was kind of a company town, sort of. Pretty much, um, I wouldn't call it, it was more like a railroad town. There you go. Mm -hmm. And even though we're right on the cusp of the Great Depression, the Maddox family doesn't do too bad because working for the railroad company is pretty much depression proof. Uh, people and goods always have some place to go. So they actually kind of coasted through depression era pretty well off. Uh, Nancy raised all her kids in as well she could in, in up in God. Uh, Glenna got married in 1930 to a man named Cecil, had a baby. It was in the paper. She was like, nice, first kid, got him doing the right stuff. Uh, and then things changed in 1913. 1931 uh grandpa charlie got sick died from pneumonia in october the family was pretty distraught uh his pension however paid for them to live comfortably at about 60 dollars a month uh the second oldest child eileen enrolled in business school and there were only two kids left at home 15 year old luther and 13 year old kathleen uh glenna did get divorced which upset her mother greatly because you know you're not supposed to get divorced once you've uh gotten married in the church Uh, uh, and then eileen died from pneumonia in 1933 that's pretty crappy it was right after she graduated too and i'm like dang she didn't even get to use her business degree nancy responded by becoming more religious and she joined the nazarene church uh and that's when things got a little more tough glenna did get married and lived married she got a new man uh, but Nancy realized during this time period that her two youngest children, Luther and Kathleen, were not really uh, on the Bible tip. They were going to movies, dancing, dating, kissing, cursing, drinking, and Nancy was just like, so much sin! It's a blasphemy. Oh my God. My goodness. So terrible. How do well, you live a life? Well, so Kathleen responded by trying to just like keep her eyes on them all the time. And so... They pretended to do what their mom wanted. But Kathleen started crossing the river to Ironton and getting in trouble. And, uh, I mean, she got in trouble because in 1934, she realized she was pregnant. She had met an older man who was called Colonel Scott. That He wasn't a real colonel. That was just his first name. But he definitely let her believe that he was in the army. He was 23, and she didn't know that he was already married. Oh, no. <clears throat> when she told him that she was pregnant, he told her he was getting called back to the military, and then he just never came back. <laughs> oh, would you look at that? Oh, damn. You know what? He's calling me back. I'm sorry. He's like, you know what? I, oh, I'm about to go back out to uh, Hawaii. See you later. <laughs> now, you would think with Nancy being so intensely religious, she would be really upset. And she was disappointed, but she wasn't going to abandon her daughter. Yeah. Uh, so, but she did say this, listen, I will help you with this baby, but I have one condition. They're going to be raised in the church 
And Kathleen was sitting there like, I don't really like that. And so in 1934, while she is still very pregnant, she meets a random man named William Manson, moves to Cincinnati. Nobody knew who this guy was. Like, there's nothing in the history books about him, really. And That's then, always a good sign. Uh, well, and even worse, Nancy uh, found out that Kathleen had lied to get married. She forged the documents. What do you mean she lied? How'd she lie? Because she was 15. Oh. <laughs> at no point in the history of America were you uh, legally allowed to get married at 15. Are you sure? Not in, like, the, the 1800s or some shit like that. When I don't think it was done on paper back then. But okay. once you started having to, like, file a marriage certificate with the state that you live in mm, they wanted mm. you to be older and yep. so she's she pretty much forged her mom's name saying i give my daughter consent to marry this adult man so november 12th 1934 kathleen gives birth to charles mills charles mills manson uh at the cincinnati general hospital charles birth certificate lists William Manson of Cincinnati as his father. But he wasn't really the daddy. Mm -hmm. And so here's the thing. Like I said, Kathleen's 15 and William is a day laborer at a dry cleaners. And I don't know how you are a day laborer at a dry cleaners because I thought that meant you had to do that construction work. But I guess it just means you get paid under the table. You show up, do work when they need you to, and then you dip. Oh, okay. So even though this happens, Nancy's like, Listen, you you need to go back to school. You need to do some other things. So I will watch the baby during the day and I will teach him the Nazarene way. And he did. He ended up spending a lot of time with his aunt Lena or his grandmother. But Kathleen did not go back to school. Kathleen decided that she was going to party because she was young and beautiful. And, uh, she and Luther started disappearing for days. And Nancy must have just had the the mother's intuition to know that her kids were doing the wrong thing. Because she told Nancy, are y'all out there conning and robbing people? Oh. I'm going to let you know they absolutely were, but they don't get caught the right away. Yes. No, they absolutely <laughs> were. Like Kathleen was like, flirting and enticing people and then luther would come and like beat him up and like steal their stuff mm. that i don't know how she knew that that was what they were doing but she knew it and so about two and a half years go by kathleen is wild she's on the cusp she's still she's only 17 years old uh she is not doing anything that a wife should do. And so her husband falls for divorce under gross neglect of duty. And back in those days, that just meant she was not fulfilling her wifely duties. And I mean, he wasn't lying. She wasn't cooking. She wasn't cleaning. She wasn't watching the kid. And they weren't having sex. In fact, Kathleen didn't even show up to the court proceedings. Oh she just God. didn't show up. Oh, no. And I guess it, it makes sense that she didn't really care about this marriage because she only got married because she didn't want to be seen as like having a baby out of wedlock. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. So uh, they obviously, the court sides with William since he's the only one there. And 
William convinces them that there were no children, the issue of this marriage. That's the direct quote, which is, we did not have any kids that are biologically mine in this marriage. And since Kathleen wasn't there to dispute that, the court went with Charles. Uh, he That's the last we hear from him. And Kathleen goes back to her maiden name, Maddox. <sighs> Kathleen also goes back to her family. And then she finds out that Colonel Scott is in Kentucky. Oh. That's where he went after he told her that he went back. Uh, <laughs> he went back into the military. So she yeah. heads down to Kentucky and files a bastardy suit. Uh and in court, Colonel's like, I mean, yeah, we were it's probably my kid. We were having sex. And the court rules in Kathleen's favor. Colonel is supposed to pay $5 a month for his son, which he never does. Um, Kathleen tries to get his wages garnished. That doesn't work. Um, and so with no money coming in and no job, and she's pretty much living with her mom, Nancy, again, she starts doing what she does best, which is hunting for a husband. Now, in 1938, Kathleen is in the newspaper. Because she is going to marry ex-con James Roby. Uh, he was a bootlegger during Prohibition. Oh, okay. So it wasn't so it nothing, looked, nothing that bad. Listen, it was against the law, but you know. <laughs> just because it's against the law doesn't mean much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so everyone expected that the next time they would see Kathleen's name in the paper, that it was going to be for... The wedding. Instead, however, this is because Kathleen Luther and her friend Julia robbed and assaulted a man for $27. Oh, wow. <clears throat> they finally got caught. And it happened within hours, too. Everyone confesses to their part in it, even though Luther was like, they didn't do anything. It was just me. She has a baby. Like, don't, don't take her away from her son. Uh, but the girls also confess to their part and Kathleen gets five years in prison. Luther gets 10. Charles is now four and a half years old and entirely living with grandma Nancy. Okay. I forgot all about Charles. <laughs> <laughs> Cause his mom's a nut and his early childhood. Now here's the thing. Um, Everybody, like Nancy was just like, no, I want, I want Charles to stay with me in Ashland in Ohio. And, like the problem is that the rest of the family is like, well, here's the thing. His mom is at Moundsville Penitentiary and that's two hours away from Ashland. And that's a really long ride when you don't have a car. And however, Aunt Glenna and Uncle Bill lived only five miles north of Moundsville. So Charles moved in with them in the city of McMachin. Uh, McMachin might as well have been a mining town. There were about 4,000 people who lived there and you were either a miner, you worked at the mill, or you worked on the railroad. Those are the three jobs. Uh, it was very much, you worked for one of those three companies. And then it wasn't just that though. Like you had a son, your son grew up and also worked at your company. It was that kind of place. Mm. Now, four-year-old Charles is a menace. They said he was an adorable baby. He had dimples and a smile that attracted people into him. But from the moment he could talk, he lied. 
And when he got in trouble for lying or breaking things, he would blame it on somebody else. He is described as even at like four years old, needing to be the center of attention. And it didn't matter if it was something for something good or bad. And that was even before he moved in with Glenna and Bill. 1938, his cousin, Joanne, Glenna's daughter, is eight years old. She's not okay with this. She doesn't like the fact that she's going to have to watch Charles all the time. She doesn't like the fact she's going to have to walk him to school, protect him from bullies. And she's going to have to protect him from bullies because he's a total brat. Joanne actually was interviewed and said there was never anything happy about him. He never did anything that was good. Now, fall of 1939, he turns five in November and he starts first grade. Mrs. Varner's class. Mrs. Varner is known as being a pretty awful teacher. Uh, She runs a very strict classroom and she's pretty mean. She was the mean teacher. Uh, Mrs. Varner didn't really approve of Charles. You know, he was a little boy. He doesn't have a dad. His mom's in jail. And she pretty much told Charles that he pretty much came from bad stock. And he was destined for a horrible future. And Charles went home crying. That's terrible. Well, Uncle Bill found crying from little boys to be unacceptable. He demanded that Charles never cry when they visited his mom at the prison. And he was not okay with this display of tears. So his response was to take one of Joanne's older dresses and force Charles to wear it the next day to kindergarten because that's that's apparently that would make him not cry anymore yeah that's definitely yeah him being teased yeah for, oh know. yeah that's definitely not gonna stop that from happening it no. doesn't help that he's already he's a tiny kid he's he's little he's thin he's shorter than kids his average age all that stuff le- lends itself to you getting bullied and Charles doesn't really flourish in McMatchin. He doesn't play outside with other kids. He just stays in the house. He struggles with school. He gets bullied a lot. Um, Often Joanne would have to step in uh, and handle the bullies, sometimes getting hurt herself. There was one situation where uh, outside of the school a boy like slapped charles and joanne came up and was like whoa what are you doing he's like smaller than you and the guy slapped her too and she bit him oh nice. which got everybody sent to talk to the principal and the teachers were like we can't figure out why joanne would do that and so joanne tells them like i was protecting my cousin and they asked charles what happened outside and Charles is like, I don't know. Joanne just showed up and bit somebody. Wow. <clears throat> and that definitely sets the stage for their relationship. Joanne feels compelled to help him, but she absolutely <clears throat> knows he does not have her back. Right. He don't deserve that help. Uh, their relationship was very, uh, I would say, tenuous from the jump. Um, There was another situation that Joanne remembers when she was about 10 years old and Charles was seven and Glenna and Bill went to Charleston for the day. Now, Joanne had her chores and they, she was supposed to clean the house that day. And Charles didn't have to do any chores because Charles refused to do chores. And so rather than fight with him, they just were like, whatever. And so 
that day, apparently, Charles decided that he was just going to be a pain. And, like, while she's trying to, like, make the beds, untuck them, while she's trying to clean stuff, you know, clomp around in his dirty shoes. And so, finally, like, Joanne just kind of grabs him, shoves him out the door, and locks it. Oh. Oh. Um, So she can actually go inside. And so she hears him outside, like, screaming and yelling. And then she said she looked out the window and he had grabbed a sickle from the front yard and he was slashing at the screen door on the back door. Okay, that's definitely going to make me let you in faster. Well, at that point, Joanne's terrified. And she's like, he means to hurt me. And so she refuses to open the doors at all. And mm. and Glenna and Bill arrive home to see like a red faced Charles, like panting, staring at Joanne in the window. And she's in the window, just white as a sheet. And her, her parents come in. They're like, what the hell is going on? And Joanne is just like, ask Charles. And Charles says, I was defending myself. And of course, the they house. don't believe that because she's terrified and the screens are ripped up. He was trying with all his might to get back in the house. Right. You know, Bill didn't believe him. He got a spanking. But Joanne said he got spankings all the time. It never did anything. He was just always out of control. Now, Charles lived with Glenna and Bill and Joanne for three years. And he was only into a couple things. Knives, anything sharp guns and music uh actually ben was like sorry bill was just like wow he actually likes a normal little boy thing and i think that's weird that we think that uh sharp things and guns are little boy things but we can talk about that another day uh he was also very gifted uh musically like he could just by ear play a song um now let's go back to luther and kathleen Luther is on his 10-year sentence. Uncle Luther. He can't stay out of trouble. Uh, he would get in trouble for backtalking the guards, stealing things. And then February 21st, 1942, he steals a prison truck and escapes. Uh, and they removed his early release for that. Uh, Kathleen, however, did keep her head down. She got paroled the same year that Luther got his term extended. Uh, with Kathleen released she and Nancy were not on good terms anymore. And Glenna really was just like, take your son. Take, take your son. (laughs) Get him out of here. (laughs) (laughs) So Kathleen's like, you know what? We're going to live on our own. It's just going to be me and my boy without my family's help. Uh, Charles said in his autobiography that this was the first, this first month with Kathleen was the best time in his entire life. Um, The problem was, see, when he was at school with Joanne, Joanne made sure he got to class. And so Mm -hmm. he was at school. The problem now was that there was nobody to make sure he went to school and he just wouldn't go. And so my mom would be working at the grocery store and he would just show up in the middle of the day. He would beg the women at the store for pennies, buy bubble gum and just hang out. And Kathleen said that that was when she realized that her son was very manipulative and that it was often directed towards women. Mm. Well, so here's the thing. Now Kathleen gets off work. She's now in her early 20s. And she wants to be like a 20-year-old. 
So she hires anybody who will take a couple of dollars to watch Charles at night while she goes out drinking and dancing, trying to find a man. She, that didn't work, by the way. Uh, And in fact, she got arrested for grand larceny and those charges got dropped. For trying to find a man? Well, I think she tried to steal a car. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She moved to Indianapolis with Charles. Uh, Charles said in his autobiography that he believed that during the time they were in Indianapolis that he thought that Kathleen was a prostitute uh, because she never really had a job. But legally, there are no records of uh, Kathleen Maddox being charged with solicitation. So it's possible, but it's also just as possible that she was taken under the table jobs and just being paid cash. I think it's weird that he immediately assumed his mom must have been a prostitute if he didn't know what she was doing. But regardless, right. um, summer of 1943, Kathleen's like, this is it. My son's nine. I'm going to do better. I'm going to join uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to get my life together. And at AA, she meets 27-year-old Lewis. And they literally tell people in recovery you shouldn't be dating anybody. You should be focusing on yourself, but you definitely shouldn't be dating another addict. Mm-hmm. Not only do the two uh, start dating, they get married two months later, August <clears throat> of 1943. Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> they both stopped going to AA. Uh, apparently, Kathleen did stop drinking, but Lewis did not. Kathleen had hoped that if she found a man, like a good man, and and in his fairness, Lewis was a good man, sort of. Like 50% of the time. Mm-hmm. He gave Kathleen the attention that she had never properly got from another man. Um, Like, in a sense that, like, beforehand, all the attention that Kathleen got was sexual. And this, Lewis actually did like her as a person and want to be with her. The problem was, Lewis did not want to be a dad. And he pretty much told Kathleen nah that's he's your responsibility oh and so Kathleen like any normal person would hear that from a person from a spouse and be like that's not gonna work but because Kathleen this is the first time she's ever had a man who actually wants to be with her long term she's just like all right I'll handle it nine-year-old Charles is still a problem. Stealing anything he can get his hands on. When he gets caught, he blames Kathleen or Lewis or somebody else. He cuts school so often that she was on a first-name basis with the truancy officers. She tried to bribe him. That didn't work. She threatened to beat him. He laughed in her face. Uh, And through all this, Kathleen feels guilty. She's just like, he's a terrible kid because I was a terrible mom because I went to prison. Um, And some days... When he got mad at her, he would just scream. And even though he was only like five foot tall, 60 pounds, it was still really scary. So in 1947, when Charles is just 12 years old, Kathleen starts looking into foster homes and placement facilities for Charles. He had started running away from home and she just couldn't control him. So the Jabot School for Boys in uh, Terre Haute, Indiana, had an opening. It was only 75 miles away, and the school promised to foster a positive learning environment for young male delinquents. That's a direct quote from their paperwork. Uh, Despite her disdain for religion, Kathleen didn't really have an issue with the fact that the school was run by priests. 
Now, the funny thing about this is that Charles' explanation of this is hilarious. He talks about Jabot school like it was hell. It was horrible. The priest hated me. <laughs> Jabot is the nicest school that he will be at in, the, in all of his adolescence. It was an open campus. There were no fences or walls around the building. It was insanely lenient. The only oh. thing was you had to go to church. And if That's... you were a bad boy, you got paddled. But do you want to know how many times you got paddled? How many times? Three. Just once? Oh, three they times. Would, you could only be swatted three times because they felt like any more, and that would be abusive. Uh, that's not bad. Yeah, that sounds like a just pretty freaking chill. I mean, compared to some of the stories that we've talked about. Yeah. That one school that had a torture room. Yeah, just to break the kids. And oh, would just God. beat that. Uh, what was his name? Oh, oh. He was the one who, when he got hanged, he said, uh, hurry up, because <laughs> they were taking too long at his execution. Yeah, like, that guy, like, I mean, he was horribly tortured. So Gibraltar was nothing. And here's the thing. He ran away, like, very fast. And so he shows up at his mom's house, and he's cr- he cries. He's like, everyone hates me. They told me to leave. And Kathleen's like, I ah, no, this is a lie. And she takes him back to Gibraltar. Nice. Now, December. Well, see, so he's only been there a couple months, so I don't know how he was well behaved enough that he gets a pass to go home for the holidays, and he doesn't want to visit his mom. Um, He had been talking to Joanne, and she didn't really like her cousin, but she felt bad for him, so she would send letters back, and. She's like, well, if you have a pass, why don't you come visit us? Mm -hmm. Kathleen does not visit during Christmas, uh, but he does spend the holiday with Uncle Bill and Uncle Louis and Aunt Glenna and Joanne. Uh, Nancy had actually moved to McMechan to be near the family. Uh, Louis had tuberculosis in 44 and he had survived, but he was too weak to work or really do anything for himself. So his mom was taking care of him. But everybody, like most of the family lives in McMetchin now. And the first week, it's all going okay. Um, Luther turned his life to God. Uh, Joanne got tuberculosis, but it was mild form. So she was able to be home by December 25th. Charles is at the house. He's not doing anything wrong. And then December 24th, They're all getting ready to go to church with Nancy. Charles is like, okay, let me go take a shower. And then Glenna realizes the water's been running for a really long time. So she goes to talk to Joanne. And Joanne's like, I don't know what he's doing. Go talk to him. And he's not in the shower. He's in his room. With his (laughs) uncle's gun. Uh And he's like, yeah, I took it. And everybody was just like, sigh. And they sent him back to the school. He ran away 10 months later in October. He didn't go back to his mom. This time he robbed a couple stores, ran a room in a boarding house. And it couldn't have been anywhere legitimate because who would rent to a child? No. Yeah. No. And he was so short. He looked like he was probably 10. Either way, he got caught trying to break into another store. The judge takes pity on him and sends him to Boys Town in Omaha, Nebraska. Still not a terrible school. Okay. It, 
it's a little more strict than Jabalt, but it's it's really not that bad. Though later on in their history, uh, the boys' school got into a lot of trouble with uh, assault cases and things like that. But it doesn't matter. He wasn't there long enough. Four days. Four days after going to the boys' school of Omaha. He runs away with another boy. They steal a car, commit an armed robbery, which is by far the worst crime he's committed so far. The next judge is not sympathetic and sends him to the Indiana Boys School in Plainfield. Now, Plainfield is different. Some of the boys in Plainfield were there for murder. Assault. This was like a step below. This was like, we can't send you to real prison. So we got to put you here. Um, now Charles would tell reporters that in Plainfield he was raped. Um, he said it also had happened by a staff member. <sighs> Unfortunately, because he it, he does lie about so much of his life, we're not entirely sure. But um, well, I'll tell you, he he wrote something weird in his autobiography. He said, you know, getting raped, you can just wipe that off. I don't feel like someone getting violated. It's a terrible thing. I just thought, clean it off. That's all this is. And I think that's a really weird thing to say. Yeah, 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 it is. Um, And like I said, he was such a small stature. It's very likely that because uh, Plainfield had inmates up to 21 years old. So you have a 13-year-old who is is small and frail and a 21-year-old living in the same space. So Mm -hmm. I think it's very likely that he might have actually been telling the truth about being sexually assaulted here. Mm. As far as schooling at Plainfield, there was no such thing as skipping classes, but the issue is that Charles is functionally illiterate. Like he should be at like a seventh or eighth grade level, but he can't read at all. Uh, He, they think that he might've had a learning disability, but these were things that nobody knew about in 1949. I mean, uh, my biological mom would have been born in the late 70s. And when she was in school, they didn't know what dyslexia was. Mm-hmm. She just had to teach herself how to understand the words. Oh. So that was the 70s that we were, were really like, it was the 80s and the 90s before we really got a hold on the fact that some kids learn differently from other kids. Right, yeah. Which is wild, but I mean, it's very recent that, so that's why like some people are like, I feel like every kid's autistic now. And I'm like, or more like they were always autistic and we just didn't know mm-hmm. and we just like treated them awful 50 years ago. Yep. Or more like 80 years ago in this case. Like there very well could have been something that they could have helped him with, but we don't know. Now, remember how I said that Charles used to scare the crap out of Kathleen? Right. He would just scream. Yeah. Well, he really figured out how to weaponize that at this point in his life. He called it the insane game. And when he was opposed in any way, or he couldn't protect himself, or he wasn't in control, he would start screaming, grunting, flapping his arms around. Uh, And it was actually rather efficient. Sometimes people gave him what he wanted, or it stopped him from getting hit. Mm. Uh, now, Dor- <laughs> Dor- sorry. <laughs> <Just make> what? <laughs> I mean, like-, like you have a bully situation, and suddenly the person you're about to fight is acting like they're having a seizure. I would walk away too. Okay, yeah, true. I, th- I thought it was just like him screaming and stuff, and <laughs> just like I can I'd probably imagine that seems scary to witness. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Anyway, continue. no, it's okay. 
<laughs> now, Kathleen didn't keep in contact with him during this time at Plainfield. She was hoping that school would reform her son. But October of 1949, Charles and six other boys try to escape. This was his fifth attempt at this location, by the way. Uh, usually he tried to do it by himself and he never made it out. But this time with the other boys, they did actually break out. Uh, Charles was found 12 hours later trying to break into a gas station. Oh, my God. Come on, guy. It's always a gas station. I don't know why this kid doesn't stop doing this. But February 1951 at 16, he tries to escape again with two other boys. They steal a car and drive west. Um, at this point, Charles had created allies with a lot of the older boys so that he wasn't getting assaulted. But he also just hated being confined. They got caught breaking into a gas station in Utah. And Charles was sent to the National Training School for Boys in Washington, D.C. And part of his. They specifically said when he was arrested this time and convicted this time, he is not to be released before his 21st birthday. Now, the training school's evaluations show that despite the fact that he can barely, like, read, his IQ is above average. And so his case marker marks his file saying that he is aggressively antisocial. And after a month of talking to Charles, the social worker writes, this boy tries to give the impression that he is trying to adjust, although he is not putting forth any effort in this respect. Um, I feel in time he will try to be a big wheel in the cottage. Now, if you're keeping track, this is his third reform school in just over four years. And as Charles is in there, just kind of not doing much, he realize, he learns about this other school in Washington called, well, it's actually in Virginia, so right near Washington. But it was called the National Natural Bridge Honor Camp. And see, the hmm. honor camp was where you got to go if you were going to be transferred. And... It, to get there, you had to prove that you were exceptional and show that you changed your ways. Now, Charles did not intend to change his ways, but what he did think he could do was manipulate the psychiatrists. How would that work out for him? <laughs> oh, it works out very well. So a psychological report in 1951 says that Charles has an inferiority complex and that he is a fairly in slick institutionalized youth. So it's very much aware that the psychiatrist realizes that he's a con he's a con artist. Mm -hmm. But in that same report, he wrote, one is left with the feeling that behind all this lies an extremely sensitive boy who has not yet given up in terms of securing some kind of love and affection from the world. So even though this doctor is very suspicious, Charles was very successful and and trying to convince them that he needed something to help him increase his self-esteem. Mm. And so, of course, the psychologist went, why don't we send him to Natural Bridge Honor Camp? <clears throat> and they move him on October 24th. Aunt Glenna learned about this move and was just like, this is a positive. If you get yourself released from the honor camp, you can come back here and live with us. Now, he moved there October 24th, 1951. His parole hearing is set February 1952. All he has to do is follow the rules and they will let him free. He does not, in fact, do that. 
In January, he's caught sodomizing another boy while holding a razor blade to his throat. Oh my God. The school wasn't really all that keen on consensual gay sex, but they definitely were anti-rape, and so he is not given a parole hearing and instead is sent to the Federal Reformatory in Petersburg, Virginia. At the reformatory, he doesn't even try. He's He gets sent to the reformatory after his trial. That's January 18th. By August, he has eight serious infractions on his record. Three involve homosexual acts. He was using the insane game in a predatory way now to scare the other students. The reformatory is writing that, like, we are struggling to keep other children safe from Charles. In fact, it gets so bad that they petitioned to move him to a maximum security facility in Chillicothe, Ohio. Nine months later, he's moved. Even there, he's considered so dangerous, they don't want him in general population with the other kids. In his file in Chillicothe, they say, in spite of his age, he is criminally sophisticated and regarded as grossly unsuited for retention in open reformatory type situations such as Chillicothe. Sorry. So what they're saying is these open group home facilities he's not going to do well here but there's literally no place else to send him as a child and chili cough is the most intense most guarded program in the country oh nice so definitely no breaking out well for children it's just the it's the best they could do um, mm-hmm. they couldn't send him anywhere else they just had to endure okay and so it's like oh, all right we got a couple more years with this kid and then all of a sudden fall of 1952 he just stops trying to rape other kids or beat them or scream at them or stab them he spends the following year working on his classes he attends every class his test scars show that he moves from a fourth grade reading level to a seventh grade reading level he's picking up basic arithmetic he learned about car maintenance and they started giving him jobs because he was doing great he was fixing the uh trucks and vans for the chili institute in 1954, they even give him an award for good service. Oh, wow. In just two years, his his reports and his files go from, we wouldn't trust him to cross the street, to maybe we should release him. <laughs> no. He's 19 now, by the way. Now, I don't know how much you know about this, Brian, but it smells fishy to me. He'd been in oh. six facilities in seven years. Mm-hmm. And, and he yeah, does right. And and then he's like, "Let's release him from our the next this one right here." Yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. No. Well, what it no. reminds me of is a very tall serial killer by the name of Ed Kemper, who was put in a facility at 15 years old because he shot his grandmother and grandfather. Mm-hmm. Now Ed got into that facility and he learned how to manipulate the doctors to get what he wanted. Now for Ed, he didn't want to be released. He is many times in his history told people that he feels like institutions are the only place that he can thrive. Um, So what Ed did was manipulate them to let him have power within the Institute. So it got to the point where Ed was giving other criminals the surveys and psychological tests that the doctors used to do. That was what Ed wanted to learn from other sick minds. And some of the things that he learned ended up being things he took into his life as a serial killer. For our boy Charles, he wanted out. And I think he did the same thing as Ed. I think he manipulated everybody at that facility. 
to make it seem like he was reformed. And he Mm. just, because I feel like anybody following this pattern of behavior knows that this is going to escalate. Right. Yeah. But a lot of times with prisons or even prison environments like juvenile detention centers, there they have, there's not enough space. So the second that a kid starts like showing like, Oh, they're not a horrible inmate. They release them immediately. And the thing is, for a lot of people who are in prison, adults and children, this is the first place that they receive any kind of psychological help for their problems. So they go from a place, even though it's a prison or an institution, of, I have a therapist, I have medicine, I have doctors, I have people who I can talk to, group therapy sessions, and they release them, and now they have none of that. Mm, so you go, okay, so they just revert Hence back recidivism. To- yeah, a lot of people who are in prison have serious mental health issues. And they really shouldn't be there. Like, Charles needed real psychological help. He didn't need, like, have a uh, a meeting every couple weeks and go, how are you feeling? Are you acclimating to, the-? like, it, it wasn't proper psychological right. care. Right. Um, they were essentially babysitting the worst children of the nation. But, I mean, they decide they're going to release him. May 1954. He's 19 years old and he's back in McMetchen. The town hadn't really changed. uh, But he had been in prison a long time. Schools were no longer segregated. Uh, America was focused on communism as well as Vietnam on the political spectrum. Um, I mention this because his political ideology... Ideology... His political ideologies are going to directly relate at the end. And so I think part of him like being out of society, in society, out of society, in of in society, he's not getting the full scope of what's happening in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think he starts building skewed ideas of how things should look. But we'll get more into Helter Skelter later. Back to the present. Charles one is supposed to go to Glenn and Bill's house. Joanna had married a minister and moved. Bill still really didn't like him. Kathleen was very happy to see him, but Kathleen was offering the, you, you can stay here when you don't have anywhere else to go. You know, that thing that people do when they don't really want you to stay at their house, but they feel right. like they have to. Yeah. Yeah. So Charles kind of splits his time staying at Nancy's house, Kathleen's house, and Glenna's. Um, his grandmother was just like, through God, you can become a good man. So if you come in my house, you got to go to church. Um, he struggled to find work because he'd never gotten his GED. And only work experience he had was working on the cars and trucks at the Chillicoff's facility. It took some time, but a, a, organiz- a company called Wheeling Downs, it was a racetrack, hired him to sweep stables and clean up horse poop. Uh, it was crappy pay, but his parole board approved of it. The hardest thing that Charles had to deal with was that he didn't have any friends the kids in McMetchin were pretty square they liked school bake sales and sock hops and sporting events every boy wore flannel shirts and jeans and converse converses the girls wore dresses all the time they weren't really his people and so since nancy said he had to go to church he was like i guess i'll join the the youth the teen bible study group to make her happy and he would go to their social events. <sighs> Charles wanted to impress those kids. 
but he didn't know how. So they're talking about their lives and he starts bragging about the past, telling them that he used to beat people up. He stabbed people. He did drugs. And these kids didn't even know about weed. Look here. If if the kids you want to impress are going to like sock hops and shit like that. And go to teen Bible study every week by choice. You do not talk about that stuff. That's like intimidate. You're trying to intimidate them. I don't know what he friends. was trying to do, but they weren't. Listen, like I said, these kids had never even heard of weed. So him talking about shooting up, they were like, what? And the thing is, it's not like any of these kids are perfect. Even Christian kids do crazy stuff. Like some of them, you know, send a little, stole a beer here or there. But drugs? We don't do drugs. <laughs> Um, he actually tells a story about how he went to a Halloween party his first year and he actually tried really hard to like be like the other kids. He dressed up as a carnival barker. He went full out with the costume. And the only person who talked to him the entire night was the girl who threw the party. Um, the silent treatment expanded past the Nazarene students because they started telling kids at school about the things that Charles did when he was in prison. And so now he's a full outcast. But as an outcast, he meets another outcast, a man named Charles Willis, AKA cowboy who had divorced his wife. Uh, That's why he was an outcast. Can't divorce anybody in this world. Now cowboy liked Charles and he introduced Charles to his kids and cowboy had two daughters and Charles thought they were both cute and very funny. Wait, 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 hold on. <laughs> hold on. His name is Cowboy. That's his nickname. Okay. <laughs> okay, continue. <laughs> over here clowning this dude for having a goofy nickname. <laughs> Look, I'm not clowning him. I'm just like, Cowboy. He's going by Cowboy. People, That's what they called him in town, Cowboy. Cowboy, okay. Not well, text, so the- nothing like that. Cowboy's oldest daughter was already married, but his daughter Rosalie visited. And Charles turned on the charm for Rosalie. They started dating. And the town was just like, "Eh, every good girl has a moment with a bad boy. And then a couple months later, they were like, they're getting married. And people were like, maybe she's pregnant. But nope, she wasn't pregnant. She just wanted to be with him. So they applied for a marriage certificate January 13th, 1955. Rosalie married like lied and said she was 17 uh, when she was really 15. Charles actually wrote the wrong date saying to the court that he was 21 when he was really only 20. Uh, Cowboy and his ex-wife gave consent for the marriage. It happened at the Nazarene church. Nancy was so happy. The congregation attended even though they didn't like Charles. They liked Nancy so they showed up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kathleen was not there. She and Lewis were in California now. They had just left. And here's the thing. Charles tried to be a regular person for a little while. He and Rosalie found a little spot to run. He worked a second job to make sure all the bills were paid. People would sit on their porches until late. So he and Rosalie did the same thing. He helped his neighbors whenever he could. He even made a couple friends in town. He would play guitar. It was going so great. And then a couple months into their marriage, Rosalie got pregnant. And the bills increased. And Mm -hmm. even with two jobs, he wasn't making enough money. So he went back to what he knew how to do, steal cars. However, this time he made sure not to do it too close to McMetchin. And he would 
sell those cars. He would steal them from one place and sell them in another. And when he felt he had enough money, he told everyone, we're moving to California. So they drove a stolen Mercury all the way to Cali in the summer of 1955. Now, Charles reconnects with his mom. They all live together. He's having a great time. Uh, Kathleen left Lewis, so he's not there. And then in September of 55, a cop notices these plates on the car aren't from the Lang. And he runs the plates and realizes that the car is stolen and they arrest Charles. He outright admits the theft to the police and he pleads guilty, saying that life has been really hard on him since leaving the facility. The court orders a psychological test. Charles meets with uh, Dr. Edwin McNeil for the first time. And he told uh, Edward that after being inside for so long, he was having trouble adjusting to living in the real world, which is not that crazy. He told the doctor that he loved his wife, but sometimes he got so angry that he hit her and he wanted to do better so that he could stay out of prison for his family. The doctor tells the courts, I really don't think he's a good candidate for probation, but that perhaps Charles could be motivated through his wife and future fatherhood. So we'll go along with the normal recommendation of five years probation. This sentence was handed down on November 7th. It's going to be five months probation, okay? Mm Mm-hmm. In February, he's going to go to court to talk about the stolen car. All he had to do was just show up. Right. They were probably just going to tack on a little bit more probation. He ran away. He takes Rosalie and they go all the way back to Indianapolis, Indiana. And on March 10th, Rosalie gives birth to Charles Manson Jr., March 14th, Charles Manson Sr. is arrested. Right. April, April 23rd, his probation is revoked. And now that he is 21 years old, he's too old for reform school. So they're sending oh. him to San Pedro's Terminal Island Penitentiary in Los Angeles Harbor. He's going to jail. Now, Terminal Island is probably the best place at the time he could have been sent. It's a federal prison for low-risk inmates. But it's still a prison, um, but not nearly as bad as some places he stayed when he was a kid. Early evaluations mark him as being a potential disciplinary problem and said he had trouble controlling himself. The prisoners at Terminal, uh, some of them were older, so things like the insane game just didn't, they didn't care. Yeah, no, that, that's not going to work on his buddy, sorry. It, it was more like he starts screaming and flopping on the floor and they just kind of look at him and walk away. Mm. So Charles spent the first month he was there just observing people. He ignored the white-collar convicts because he's like, listen... I'm never going to be in a position to steal a million dollars, so they can't teach me anything. However, he starts hanging out with the people in prison for being pimps. He is fascinated by this. He listens to them talk about how they recruit women into the sex trade, and he admires them. He really only ever interacted with one woman, and he married her. To be able to control women, have them work for you, sounds amazing. So he's listening. He's sitting here listening to these pimps talk about how you have to find people who are vulnerable, isolate them from their families and friends, keep them under your control with a touch of affection and also abusing them. And Charles wow. is like, I'm going to do this. Wow, that sounds really like a fucking cult leader. <laughs> That's just the pimps talking about how to be a good pimp. And he's just like, this sounds like a great idea. I want to be somebody's boss. I want to control people. Now, Rosalie and Charles Jr. would come to visit him in the beginning. Um, Kathleen, not so much. 
definitely not Nancy. Mm. Uh, most people didn't get visitors there. So it was actually kind of a status thing that he got visitors. And so Charles loved that attention. In fact, the prison noted in his file that whenever he was in larger groups, he would cut up. So they were like, oh, we can fix this. Find jobs where he only works with a couple people and he doesn't act like an ass. Um, and when they did that, he was perfectly normal. He's on track to only serve one out of three years of this sentence. But then a bad thing happens. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Rosalie is like, listen, I left West Virginia for a more exciting life. And then I was in a small town. And I met you. And we were supposed to go to California and and have an amazing life. So far, all I do is hang out at your mom's house and come to visit you in prison. So Rosalie moves out of Kathleen's house and into another man's house. And she sends the divorce papers to the prison. And that is the last time that Rosalie will have any contact with Charles Manson. Uh, She had a pretty rocky life, moving all over the U.S., remarrying several times. She died from lung cancer in 2009. Uh, Charles Jr. doesn't have much better of a life. He commits suicide in 1993. Who his father was troubled him his entire life. Um, he had actually changed his name to Charles White before he died. So um, mm. those would be the, the endings of his two people. Okay. So just before Rosie left him, he had been transferred to the cells in the prison where you go before you get released. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's his parole hearing is scheduled April twenty second, nineteen fifty seven. On April tenth, they catch him in the parking lot wearing civilian clothes, trying to hotwire a car. Come on, parole man, parole. <laughs> You're two weeks away. Oh my god. Parole is denied. Terminal is like we're still going to rehabilitate this guy though. This time when they ID IQ checked him, he'd scored one hundred and twenty one. So they're like, listen, he can do something worthwhile in his life. So they had all these programs you could take. Now, do you remember who Dale Carnegie is? I remember the name. He was a salesman who ended up creating one of the most famous self-help books of all time. Uh, That book would be How to Win Friends and Influence People. And it was the most popular class at Terminal. (sighs) Uh, because a lot of the people in prison do struggle with talking to people and being like regular people. Right, right, right. It actually had a four-month waiting list. And so the prison bumped Charles up the list thinking maybe this will help him be less like moody and sour all the time. If you learn how to make friends, yes. Uh, see, this <laughs> class is not good for Charles. He He's reading this book because you get the book and then you also go to the classes. He's just like, this is, this is me. I am these pages. All the ways that he manipulated kids in the book. And as he reads more, he starts incorporating this into his life, especially chapter seven, which is how to get cooperation. And that he, in his mind, what he saw that was you can manipulate people into doing what you want. If you get them to think that it was their idea first. 
he would use that tactic for the future. After he got what he wanted from the classes, he quit before they were over. And they were kind of like, wait, why are you leaving? You're our best student. Uh, But Charles realized there was no way he was going to be able to become a pimp or get women to follow him if he looked like a weakling. So he started spending his class time boxing and playing basketball. His recreation time, he got better at guitar and he stayed out of trouble. So when Terminal got overcrowded and they were looking for people to release early, they put him on that list. And September 20th, 1958, he is released after only serving two years and five months. He is required to report to a parole officer. He told them he was going to live with his mother in L.A. and he had to show that he could get a legit job. So he got a job as a busboy just to make the parole officer happy. But in reality, he was moving into trying to be a pimp. Mm. He met two women, Judy and Flo. And Judy had to have been underage because her parents complained about Charles to the cops. So he backed off of her. He would enact a new pimp rule for that after the situation with Judy, which was no parents and no family. Only Flo, because sometimes her parents had her money. Charles moved out of his mom's house, and he in, he ended up moving in with another pimp. And this is like someone who has the worst luck in the world. He doesn't know this, but the pimp he moved in with is being watched by the FBI. Oh, snap. <laughs> and the FBI shared this information, along with his new address and his new job to his parole officer. And Charles is like, no, what are you? I just live with that guy. What are you talking about? Um, mm-hmm. And the, the report says on him, this is certainly a very shaky probationer, and it seems just a matter of time before he gets into further trouble. And it's that's absolutely true because May first, nineteen fifty nine, he was arrested trying to cash a forged check for thirty seven fifty at Ralph's supermarket. He had stolen a pack of like checks out of somebody's mailbox. When the Secret Service interviewed him about this, they believed that he ate the check to avoid having to prove it was forged. <laughs> Legitimately, the guy like the, the actual report says, "I turned and looked back." And the check was gone from the table. Oh, my God. I mean, that's one way to get rid of the evidence. <laughs> it didn't work, though, because at this point, the feds had seen it, the Ralph's clerk had seen it, and the LAPD had seen this check. Oh, my God. <sighs> July 19th, 1959, Nancy Maddox dies in West Virginia. Uh, Kathleen's having a really hard time with grief from her mother but also she doesn't know how to support charles with all of his criminal cases and she's just like this is all my fault mid-september 1959 okay now mind you the feds are taking their time looking into this case a woman named leona musser goes to charles parole officer and tells him that she's pregnant with charles's baby and she's like please can you drop this case leona is not pregnant She's actually one of the professionals who works for Charles. Charles had sent her there. Oh, and the ploy worked. The court takes sympathy on their family. They let Charles plead guilty to forgery and drop the mail theft charge, which was a federal offense. Mm -hmm. Dr. Edwin McNeil evaluates him again. And the doctor is just like, he is not a good fit for probation. You need to send him back to prison. Listen Leona... to me. I'm a doctor. <laughs> Damn it. Oh, listen. Leona shows up at his court date in September. She cries. 
The judge caves. Charles receives 10 years probation. No physical jail time. (laughs) Now, Charles, ever the arrogant criminal, didn't think he would get caught again, considering the first time he got caught as a pimp was because of someone else. So he decides that he wants to expand the area that his girls work in. And he drives them to New Mexico in December. And uh, for people not familiar with the law, prostitution is a misdemeanor. But once you cross state lines, it gets a new name. That name is called trafficking. And now it's a federal offense. So they, yeah, 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 yeah. Once you uh, cross state lines with a group of prostitutes, y'all, they're now trafficking victims and you are the one trafficking them. Oh, I mean, okay, okay, okay. see, now that makes sense, okay. <laughs> yep, it now falls under uh, federal purview, but, so here's the thing, though. He gets caught in New Mexico. Charles hastily marries Leona, so she can't testify against him. And though she'd originally lied, she was pregnant now. As the FBI prepared a case against him, Charles keeps breaking the law. He gets arrested two times in 1959 for stealing a car, another time for using a stolen credit card. Each of these cases gets dropped for a lack of evidence, but the trafficking case is something called a Man Act violation, and he's said to be indicted. So he runs away again. Leona, now alone, is like, you know what? I got to think about me and my baby. Um, If I go to jail, they're going to take my kid. So she tells the feds everything. Even though they can't find him, there's a trial and a grand jury does indict him. His 10-year probation is revoked, a warrant put out for his arrest, and they do indeed find him June 1st, 1960 in Laredo, Texas. He was extradited to California again, made to go back to jail for 10 years for forgery and sent to the United States Penitentiary on McNeil Island in Puget Sound, Washington. This would have been 10 years hard labor, so he appeals. In July, they dropped the Man Act charge, and his public defender really did a good job muddying up the judicial system. They don't even get to the appeal until June 1961. They deny the appeal. He's sent to McNeil Island, and at 26 years old, Charles has spent over half of his life incarcerated. McNeil was a hard labor camp, um, essentially because it was an island. Most of the guards and their families lived on the island outside of the prison. And so they made the inmates do the innkeep for the roads. Um, It was a mixture of white collar criminals, small time thugs like Charles and more serious offenders. Initial evaluations of Charles when he comes in is that he's young, eager, well-spoken. They comment on how likable he is. Uh, He's lively. But they also say that it's very obvious he seems lonely. He's hiding a lot of resentment and hostility. Charles tells him that he finds institution life easier than regular life. At McNeil, he learns other things from inmates. He gets into Scientology. The prison. (laughs) Oh, yeah. This is it's interesting because this is Scientology before it became a rich people religion. Mm -hmm. So the beginning of Scientology was not what we know it as today. Because there's no way you would allow a broke prisoner into Scientology with the way that they're looking for people now. Um, 
But the prison was just like, ah, he likes a religion. This is a good thing. He's playing sports. This is a good thing. Leona gives birth to Charles Luther Manson in 1961. She is granted her divorce in January of 1964. We do not know what happened to Charles Luther or Leona after that. Uh, Kathleen actually moves to Washington to be closer to her son. And he promises her when he gets out, he's going to be a better man. And Kathleen gets back with her ex, Louis, and they adopt a baby girl. When Charles finds out about this, he is enraged. So the fee to adopt a child in the 60s was around $2,000. And Kathleen had told Charles she didn't have the money to send him like commissary all the time or buy him a guitar. And he was just like, oh, you don't have the money, but you just adopted a baby. He tells Kathleen he never wants to see her again. Eventually, they do start talking again. Um, his sister, also named Nancy after um, their grandmother, uh, does remember. Like Nancy actually talked about remembering to go see her brother. Like she remembers going to a prison when she was very little. But Charles manipulated his mother so much through these conversations that in December of 1963, she wrote to a judge in Los Angeles saying that she would put her house up for collateral if they released Charles. Oh, wow. Damn. Kathleen's letter shows though, that she still sees Charles as a teenage boy, like the same teen boy. She sent off to Jabal, not a 29 year old pimp. He is a grown man now. And she still views him as a little boy who she failed as a mother. The judge denies this request. Charles continues sort of gathering friends who can teach him things. He does get that guitar. He becomes obsessed with the idea of becoming a musician. And honestly, the guitar playing with the other inmates keeps him out of prison. Like they noted in his records in May of 1966, like, honestly, he's doing all right here. Um, Now, while Charles had been doing right in prison, Kathleen got divorced from Lewis, and she actually met a very good man who cared for her. Third time was the charm. Kathleen finally kind of forgave herself for being a bad mom when she was young, and she decided, I can't change Charles. I am going to focus on Nancy. She's young right now, and if I do things right, she will have a good life. Mm-hmm. So she stops visiting Charles. August of 1966, his prison report notes, he is refusing vocational courses to gain employment. He's no longer a Scientologist. He only cared about music. The report listed one very important thing, though. He has a pattern of criminal confinement that dates to his teens. Little can be expected in the way of change in his attitude, behavior, or mode of conduct. The evaluator was trying to tell McNeil Prison not to release him, but McNeil was overcrowded and he wasn't causing trouble. So they release him again. Now, a friend of his in prison, Phil Kaufman, told Charles, like, you're a really good musician. I know this guy named Gary Stromberg at Universal Studios uh, in L.A. Go visit him and try and like he should let you record there. March 21st, 1967, he's set to be paroled after seven years in prison. Um, Charles didn't have anywhere to go. He had like phone numbers from other criminals. So he called a bunch of people. And he convinced a former inmate in Berkeley to let him crash there. Berkeley was the most different and diverse place that Charles had ever seen. Kids from all over the country came there to University of California, Berkeley, UC Berkeley. 
um, he walked out of prison and into a supercharged environment. There were daily protests about America and Vietnam, protests for uh, rights for black people. And the thing is, while he was in prison, he hadn't super paid attention to things in the world. He cared more about the Beatles when he was in prison. So he walked right into the tensest time for racial relations in the U.S. outside of now. I can't imagine how it would feel to go back into the world after pretty much being mostly unaware of black people. And then you get out and the Black Panthers are walking down the street with cards. <laughs> like he probably only knew like a handful, a handful of black guys who were at the prison and prisons are so segregated by like race that he probably had very little interaction with black people while he was in prison. And now he walks into town and there's people in Black Panther like they're, they literally carried automatic weapons mm-hmm. patrolling yeah. certain neighborhoods <laughs> at first charles went to uc berkeley campus and he listened to all the war protesters and the black rights protesters and he was just like i don't like i don't care about this so he's like you know what i want to be a musician so he started trying to like go to clubs and things and they were like we don't know you and you can't like get a night here unless we know you um he wanted to try pimping again, but while he was in prison, the sexual revolution had started. And so people were having sex for free in Berkeley. And so um, he couldn't really drum up enough business. Right. That's why they say um, pimping ain't easy. <laughs> <laughs> Charles didn't want to be a busboy or a garage attendant. He didn't know what to do. And then one day, um, he's on UC Berkeley campus and he meets this girl, Mary Brunner. Mary was from Wisconsin. And she had gotten her bachelor's and moved to California. She was a pretty simple looking girl who worked at Cal Berkeley as an assistant librarian. She met Charles while she was walking her dog. He made a huge show of how cute her dog was and how much he liked it. And he asked her what she was into. And she said, conservationism. And Charles was like, me too. Save the planet. And eventually he told her he didn't have a place to stay. And Mary was like, you can stay in my house. (laughs) and charles pretty much coerced her into sleeping with him and then he moved in for good Uh, mary went to work and charles played his guitar and tried to be a star charles wanted to try and pimp mary out but that was not a possibility um she was not that kind of gal charles decided that since everyone was on this free love kick he should be too and mary didn't like it but charles had her definitely under his finger and he made her feel loved and so she was like, I, I guess I'll just share him with all these other people. <clears throat> um, Mary believed that one day it would be just the two of them, but it would go on for years. Um, Charles would just do what he wanted, but he was still manipulating Mary into thinking that she was special. And he started taking trips to San Francisco. And that's when he found San- a place that was more his speed. He gravitated to the Haight-Ashbury district in San Francisco, which is referred to as the Height. An area rife with crime, dealers, LSD, and teen runaways. Uh, Charles contacted the doctor who was monitoring his probation and requested a move to the height, and it was granted. He arrived there in April 1967, ready to manipulate and exploit the ambitions and weaknesses of young runaways. (sighs) He arrived looking like all the other vagabonds who showed up at the height at the time, but Charles was going to do what he did best. Watch and listen and see what he could learn on the street. And what he saw were street preachers. There was one on every corner, and each had a group of like 12 or so people who would watch him. Charles still wanted to be a singer, though. 
And he was going to head to L.A. eventually, eventually. But also, he was looking at these street preachers and he was just like, I could do that. I could do that, but better. Ooh, better. And he watched for days and then he would hitch a ride back to Berkeley and sleep at Mary's house. And this was the beginning of him building his flock of followers that would follow him to hell and back. And as you know, they absolutely would. And that's going to be the end for today. Because we've already met his first cult follower, Mary Brenner. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Next week is the creation of the cult and the damage that it does. This all sounds so lovely. Yeah, things are going to get a lot worse. There were some funny bits today because he was obviously, he was honestly a terrible criminal. Right, yeah. (laughs) Next week, (laughs) next week, don't expect funny. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to move into uh, 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 yeah, uh, yeah, that's all I got to say on that. Mm. It gets weird, it gets creepy, and then it gets murdery. I love the sound of all that. Well, what are we talking about today in the paranormal world? Okay, so today we go. You're already gonna know. You're already gonna. You're already gonna know before you even say it. <laughs> I know this, but I know it. I know. I just know it. Um. So today we're gonna go south of the border, cryptid wise. Are we talking about that dog? <laughs> I told you. I I pause. Uh, I pause because I knew it was like you got to think about it for a second, then you're gonna say it. But Chupacabra. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to talk about a very popular legend in Latin America, uh, known to eat animals, but more specifically, for some- I'm just saying, of all the ones from Mexico, we could have discussed. We could have talked about La Llorona. No, we're not talking about her yet. <laughs> Like, there's other more interesting ones. I don't know why this one has captivated everybody. The entire, like, South of America. Like, all of the southern states that border Mexico are obsessed with the chupacabra and everywhere down below that. Mexico, other countries. Uh, yeah, because there's like 30 countries below Mexico that I always forget. <laughs> um, they're very tiny, but it's just. Ugh, you you can go. It's not my favorite cryptid. It's not my favorite cryptid. Oh, he, he is one of my favorites. Okay, and I will. I I can actually kind of explain why there's such a fascination, like fascination with this guy. Mm-hmm. Um and God, darn it. Um, well, we're here to learn. Okay. So, but yeah, he's he's not only known for eating animals. He's known for sucking the blood of goats, and that's actually. What his name means? It's a goat sucker. And okay, so he eats goats. That's uh, nice. <laughs> well, no, I mean that's better than eating people. This, this is true. This is true. Um, and yeah, as Brittany has already said, we're talking about El Chupacabra today. <laughs> I can feel the disdain. I can feel the disdain coming from the internet. It's, it's, it's okay. <laughs> 
Like I said, it's just not. But I'm sure that, like I said, there's some people that are obsessed with this. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure Texas listeners are like, hell yeah. Let's get it. This is my boy. <laughs> Mud flaps at Chupacabra. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. So the legend of this cryptid uh, that likes to eat your livestock, it starts back in 1995. Very. Okay. It's not very recent, but it's pretty fucking recent. Um, it doesn't give the exact date. But it's it starts in March, March of that year, um, when eight sheep are found dead, completely drained of blood, and investigators would would uh, note that there are strange puncture wounds in their chest, um, like three little puncture wounds in their chest, which is very awkward because uh, very weird because it's on all three of them. <clears throat> But with no further clues, the investigators, they chalked it up to being like a fox or a coyote attacks, of course, because, you know, they were in an area. Um, some people were like, well, we've seen this before, though. Like, we've seen, like, animal mutilation before. And it, it all goes back to um, cattle mutilation. And Now, what... what- like time is this happening? The nineties or ninety five. Oh, okay. So the narco Sataniscos already did their thing. Mm-hmm. So they didn't think that the cow mutilation and the sheep mutilation was a satanic cult because, like, that happened. Um, <laughs> actually, they did for a while. Okay, because yeah, I'm like that seems right up those people's alley. Yeah. For a while, uh, it was thought of to be like maybe this is just some satanic cult that's out here like murdering, murder, murdering, <laughs> murdering <laughs> these animals, these, these farm animals for you know the satanic purposes. Um, but you know, other people, the people like brush that aside and are like, wait a second, no, 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 this can't be it. So they're like, okay, so cattle mutilations. What do you think of when you think of cattle mutilations? First thing. Aliens. Aliens. Oh. <laughs> aliens are coming down. They're mutilating the cattle. So obviously, aliens are also coming down and sucking the blood out of sheep for some goddamn reason. <clears throat> I mean, they like to touch the butts, so why not steal the blood? That's not all aliens like your butt, okay? <laughs> I, all I'm saying is everybody who gets abducted gets probed. That's all I'm saying. Mm, I suppose. <laughs> so the first actual witness in quotations i'm using quotations first eyewitness of this blood-sucking beast was a woman named um madeline tolinto tolentino tolentino sorry i spelled that wrong um madeline tolentino and she describes the she describes this beast as being bipedal um, and it has dark eyes, very long gangly limbs, and spikes all down its back. Now, all right, yeah. Now, where she lived, they started calling it um, El El Vampiro de Mocha, and that just translates to like uh, the Mocha Vampire. So, that's the thing. Um, it's funny because. I'll explain it later. Never mind. But 
But after a while, you know, the name Chupacabra actually, you know, catches on because that's what it did. It sucked goats for a while. And it just rolls off the tongue, too. Um, it has a cool name. I, I will give you that. Yeah. Yeah, like I like I said earlier, we both said um, some people believe this was like the result of like some t- some satanic cult just coming in and like doing whatever with these animals and sacrificing them for their their lord and savior. Um, some people believe that chupacabras came from outer space, which oh, I hate it. <laughs> Why? Everything is alien. <laughs> Everything is alien. <laughs> okay, so it's funny because one of the books I have, it, it gives me like an illustration of, you know, the, the cryptids. And mm-hmm. this one illustration, it's like, it's a bipedal um, chupacabra and it doesn't have any color to it, but it looks like like the eyes of it, it looks like it could be from like outer space. You know what I mean? It's It's drawn like one of the gray aliens mixed with like a gargoyle and shit like that. That's not a chupacabra, though. That's that's the okay. So the bipedal. It looks like a creepy dog. The bite no the bi- the bipedal one is the original um, description of the chupacabra. And well, the one that they thought they found this past couple months ago. Mm. was a dog yeah <laughs> there's another one there's another one <laughs> i got pictures i got pictures i guess i'm gonna say well i got a picture in a video i'm gonna send in the chat um okay so this guy he, he was a writer his name is ben radford he had another theory about why this um madeline tolentino she she thought she saw this creature and it's, it's from his book his, his book is called tracking the chupacabra the vampire beast in fact, fiction, and folklore. Um, and he says that the reason why she thought she saw the creature that she saw is because she had seen the movie Species, like, right before she saw this creature. And if anybody doesn't know, Species is an alien movie. It's a sci-fi alien movie. Um, that's all I know about it. I don't know if it's a horror movie. I just know it's sci-fi aliens. And there you go. And there's probably like little aliens that like Chupacabra, the Chupacabra that she thought she saw. So he's like, this look. He he's like, this is the same creature from that movie that you saw. Are you sure you didn't just like I don't know, like picture it in your head and you thought that this was what it was? So. That that was a part of uh, debunking this guy, but I, I don't I don't know that that might have been because I don't know how old she was at that time when she saw the movie and she just had like a freaking nightmare or something like that. But um, in September of this year, so where was that? At? I said March first. Now it's September. We're talking about uh, fall time. Uh, fall in September. Uh, there's another sighting of this creature, and. The people who see it, they describe it almost the same way that Miss um, Tolentino had described it. Uh, they said it, was, it had the features of a kangaroo, a gargoyle, and, of course, a great alien. 
of abduction lore and it was said to be hairy about four feet tall with large with a large round head it had lipless mouth sharp fangs and huge littlest red eyes so some of the things are different like it's hairy at this time and the eyes are red and it has a small body okay and you know thin thin arms just just a monster basically uh and and, and of course it, it don't forget the spikes on his back which we'll come into later um so there are there are like from from my books and then checking on the internet there are different like conflicting dates on when people started seeing this thing some say it happened in September. Some say it happened in November. Either way, it's around the same time. Um, and this is another story that of, of a chupacabra sighting is that, you know, it had just decimated this farm. Like cows, sheep, uh, dogs, cats, rabbits, sh- um, turkeys, chickens, whatever. Everything. Fucking gone. <laughs> It it went through all the animals, and it's later on found in this little girl's room, and I guess it breaks through the window and it just tears up her teddy bear, and just rips it apart before it runs away. Um, and they give the same description as like like before. It's like it's almost like a kangaroo. It looks like a freaking gargoyle monster mixed with the alien, or like a lizard person you know scaly hairy type of thing now descriptions start to change descriptions start to change and it's it's little by little um and this is towards the end of 1995 okay so by this time this chupacabra or chupacabras if there may have been multiple at this time um they you know probably hunk impacts um have been blamed for like more than a thousand mysterious animal de- deaths, and like I said, the, the description starts to change. They start saying it looks more like a you know monkey like, and it, but it, you know it had no tail, and then they said you know so the the, the red eyes, but they sometimes they glowed, and then it's again turned gray instead of the brown like the mocha vampire. And it had like a snake-like tongue, and the the spines, the quills on his back, the spines on his back, whatever the, the spiny things, they were supposed to be its wings, so it could fly. Sometimes people would say it swooped down from trees and stuff like that. It it started getting ridiculous, okay? All right. <laughs> it started getting ridiculous, and at, um soon. Uh, some some people would find like some you know tracks, and they were like three toed tracks. And zoologists, you know, were called in to see you know what what kind of animal is this? <laughs> Please tell us what what animal has like three toes like this. And zoologists were like, I don't know. Um, we don't know of any animal that has tracks like this, which is really weird. <clears throat> so sooner or later, this this uh, this chupacabra. It started evolving. Well, it's not—I don't say evolving, but it started like taking on the description that people gave. They started taking on the, the appearance of a canine instead of like something bipedal. 
And sorry, I'm looking at my notes. Um, and and it became something like I don't know, maybe a coyote or another like canine type animal that was like it started looking like it was effective with mange, or you know what I mean? Like it, it was just like a very hairless animal. And I'm going to post a picture in our chat real quick. Oh. No, I'm staring at it right now. I thought you had posted something oh. that I was looking at. <laughs> but that was a comment from before we started recording. Yeah. No, no, no. I got it. If it will post, let me see if it opens. It might open. It might not. Nope, there it goes. Okay. And post. And that is a picture of what they saw. That's what they saw attacking their animals. That looks like a dog. That looks like a dog. It looks like a canine. Now, what's on the right? Is that a bird? In its mouth? Yeah. Yeah, that's a bird just like swinging around or grabbing. Okay. Is he either swinging it around or grabbing it by its feet? It's... We'll post this for you all on Discord <laughs> so you can look at it too. Yes, I will. Or no... Yeah, we'll put it up so you can see all the weird pictures. Absolutely. Yeah, Um, and then I have a video of that was taken by a police ca- a police cam and it says it's titled uh, I've seen this one. Yeah, Chupacabra on police camera. And it's just chasing like the car's just chasing this chupacabra down the road. Or this this, this dog type animal type thing down the road. And it's like dude, that's awesome. It's <laughs> awesome. Uh so like I said, um about the sightings and stuff. Everybody's everybody was seeing it by the end of 1995. Um, so an investigator, his name was Jorge Martin, he drew a widely circulated sketch based on you know, all the descriptions that he gave, uh, all the descriptions that like, everybody was given. Um, and it was given to like local TV um, and, you know, radio stations. And everybody just kept saying the name Chupacabra. Chupacabras. Um, sooner or later, a media a media observer, his name was Donald Troll. Um, he noted that you know whenever, whatever else it may or may not be, chupacabras represent folklore in the modern age of electronic telecommun- telecommunications. And basically, what he's saying is like this is like a new age like cryptid. This is this is the first of our new age cryptids because at first. They started reporting about the Chupacabra on TV and on radio. But then, you know what was happening at this time? In 1995, 1996, it's uh, it's when the internet starts becoming like big. And people start posting about the Chupacabra online. So they start making Chupacabra websites, Chupacabra like forum pages <laughs> and stuff like that. So... Like he points out, like this is this is an internet chupacabra. I mean, not internet chupacabra. It's an internet cryptid, and like this is this was like the first one that the internet claimed as its own. And it's like it's very awesome because this happens in our time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you talk about like uh, Sasquatch, Bigfoot, um, Mothman, um, you know, Jersey Devil, shit like that. That happened like way before like TV. Maybe radio 
sometimes maybe radio, um, but always like you had newspaper that would be reporting about this stuff. But now we like this is like the modern age. This is the first modern age things we have is the chupacabra that came out. That's why that's why I feel like like a lot of people can like especially like I don't know millennials they'll talk about chupacabra or people that are older than us <laughs> they'll talk about that chupacabra and stuff like in that. Um, he also this uh, guy his troll. He, he notes that um, he says on his what's it Periscope website is that he has I forgot Periscope was a thing, um, right? I haven't been on there in years. <laughs> he, he notes he says that um, at the height of the craze, there were probably a couple dozen chupacabras or goat sucker homepages on the internet. Then some of them, or you know, some of them still around today, probably including one at Princeton University that may legitimately be like the original chupacabra site um the website is of a sensational radio host art bell i don't know art bell hey uh posted <laughs> the legend photograph of a of living chupacabras depicting a ridiculous creature later exposed as a statue from a museum exhibit uh the photo nonetheless became a major touchstone of chupa lore fueling american interest in this creature um which hey, he's right i mean we we didn't start talking like america didn't start talking about chupacabra until like texas started reporting stuff like that because it's like right down there um now a north american-based hispanic zoologist cryptozoologist his name is a scott mm-hmm. corrales um he says he gathered and investigated Chupacabra reports in a level-headed fashion, and despite the media and the you know the internet hysteria, he says that the modern reports really modern reports of the Chupacabra really began back in the in the seventies. So nineteen seventy-four is when he said it, they really started when um, Chupacabra folklore comes from the the Taino Indian tales. Of the mm-hmm. Mabuya. I'm going to spell that out for you in the chat. Bo- so, Mabuya. Mabuya seems about right. Yeah. And the first major American sightings of Chupacabra took place in March of 1996. So, 1996, yeah. Um, so, like a year after they were first reportedly spotted. And this, they were spotted in Texas, of course. And Actually, other North American locations. Um, but yeah, at this time, like the Chupacabras, they're not really cited as much because I don't know. I don't know why. But, <laughs> but okay, there are other Chupacabras around around North America. The, okay. Okay, and they're called different names. There, there's one that's from down in Nolans, and it's it's I don't know. Stop me if you heard this one. It's the legend of Grunch Road. Never heard of it. Okay, um, let me read this. Uh, The legend of Grunch Road revealed. Some people claim it was. Oh, never mind. I can't remember. I can't know. Either way, it happened in Louisiana. I'm a name. I can't. I'm not gonna fuck up y'all names. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> what's the what's the start with that you're having trouble with? Uh, I think it's Shalmete. Shalmete. C H A C H A L M E T T E. Probably met, not oh, Mete. I remember everything's Mete. French. Uh, yes, see, there. that's why I say Mete. <laughs> No, uh, okay. No, 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 no. Okay, okay. <laughs> Don't kill me, please. I don't, I don't know anybody listens to um here from Nolans, but anyway. Um people say that there was a creature that's down there um that kind of resembles a chupacabra. And I guess it's like I wanna say it's it's not like a ghost, but it's like it it does hunt down there, so I'm not sure if it's a ghost that that haunts, like the bayous, the, the like you know, in the, in the in, as it's parishes. So I'm not sure parish, mm-hmm. it haunts those. Um, and people say it's been seen like running through the tall grass and long, you know, the the, the levees, mm-hmm. and like yeah, people have seen it <laughs> apparently. Um, and there's another one that's. Even even further north, it's in Canada, and it's just called the Canadian chupacabra. Um, and there are like this website I see. There's like a few incidents. I just want to go over one because this one looks interesting. Mm-hmm. So it goes: residents of a small community in British Columbia have a mysterious killer in their midst and are taking steps to protect their pets, farm animals, and small children. Uh, an animal thought to be part timber wolf has been stalking Bowen Island just off the coast of Vancouver for about six months, hmm. preying mainly on dogs and cats. Anyone who has family has pets and anyone who has seen it, seen the way it looks at you, <laughs> knows that it's dangerous to have around. <laughs> That's an, That was uh, an island resident who's, who made that quote. And her name was Stacy Powers, and her husband John called the, the animal on video, and they saw it snatch a gosling out of the nearby pond. Um, wow! Yeah. Uh, there's a quote that says they are a mixed-up species. They are part domestic, with the instincts of a wolf. Um, they don't. They don't react normally. And so people can't manage them, and so dumping them is a common thing to do. I guess it was. Um, I guess someone thought that this was like an abandoned dog that someone had, like, hadn't make a mixed breed dog with a wolf. You know what I mean? Like it was actually mm-hmm. half dog, half wolf, and they kind of got like out of control, and they were just, uh, they were just. Let me see if I can see this one. Send it real quick. <laughs> He just sent it. And this one, this one I'm about to send, it's a good one. I love this picture. It looks like a dog, but it's it's not a dog. I'm telling you, all the ones in North North America look mm-hmm. like dogs. I mean, it has a face that, of a dog. This looks like some kind of angry badger. <laughs> like a honey badger, but white. A white honey badger. Oh God! Listen, they're very aggressive creatures. Oh, honey badgers don't give a fuck. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, okay. So in the year of 
2010 in Texas. <clears throat> Local animal control officers, they shot and they killed an alleged chupacabra. Uh, they took it to Texas A&M, A&M University. Mm-hmm. And they conducted tests, and they found it to be a coyote-dog hybrid with mange and internal parasites. <laughs> so, I guess that... <laughs> That's exactly like the situation that just happened a couple months ago. Yeah, the, the, the dog, or that, what was it, the coyote we found in PA. Yeah, that the lady brought in. They're like, we don't know what this is. Could it be a chupacabra? And I'm like... It's not a chupacabra. Like it's it's a dog and a. It was definitely yeah. It was definitely a coyote mixed with something and and yeah. I was like, as soon as I heard it and I saw a picture of it, I was like, that's a damn coyote. How do you not know what a coyote looks like? Coyote. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I was like, maybe PA has a new cryptid. Yay! But it's a coyote with mange. It's just weirdy, weird, weird weird boy and i'm like coyotes do that they they try to get like close to you so they can eat your small dogs that's what they do we don't trust coyotes around here all right then <laughs> but there's a, okay so there's a breed of dog that's actually a hairless dog that is down in um i don't want to say mexico because it's probably wrong but it's down south and i forget what the name is i'm gonna look it up real quick but um and like people started saying that that thing that we found in PA was um, what this thing was. And I mean, there's a Mexican hairless dog. Yeah, that thing. That's the thing. The Mexican hairless. He has dog. a little. He looks like he has a little like mohawk on his head. Yeah, it's and real big ears. Yeah, yeah. It's an ox. It's an oxlo. It's blah 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 blah. Yeah, no, see, I, that, that's why I just called it a Mexican. It's a, Just Google Mexican uh, hairless dog. Because the actual name has too many X's for he, me to say it right. It says an X and a Z. It's all the, mm, okay, yeah. But anyway, that's yeah. that's what it could have been, too, because that's a, Listen, It took me years to be able to say axolotl. <laughs> Cute little salamanders. I freaking love axolotls. This has like three times more letters, but it's a Mexican hairless dog. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Um, it's cute though. They're cute, Mm -hmm. and they have a little mohawk on their face. Yeah, yeah, they are adorable. It's like a Dante from um Coco, the movie Coco. Dante. The, I don't remember the dog the, from that movie. He's a little hairless sausage. He's hilarious. He's I adorable. I just remember the depression at the end. Oh, can we not? <laughs> oh, not today. But, um... Yeah. We don't talk about coke. <laughs> Is it there? <laughs> I'm just crossing over my movies now. Mm-hmm. There are so there are two different types of chupacabras you can run across. Uh, you get the hairless dog type of thing that most people see, or you get the reptile, alien-looking guy with sharp spines and quills on his back. Um, sometimes it looks like it has wings, and sometimes it just looks like it has big-ass front claws or a tail. It, it honestly, God. 
have you seen Coneheads? It also, also like, I'm looking at a picture of one right now, and it looks like it has a bat nose. Yeah, yeah, that too. Like, it's that flat, weird nose, and I'm like, that is weird. Yeah, so, so there are bat versions, there are bird versions, there are, like, a hybrid of, Oh, like... I'm, I'm looking at your lizard version now. Yeah, that's, that's, I don't know, I don't like that one. Oh... <laughs> uh... Yeah, the one that one the the Grouch Road one, it's supposed mm-hmm. to look like uh, more like a lizard type of chupacabra than anything. It has, it's supposed to be green and scaly, and just like a flat nose. Like I don't know how to explain it. It just looks weird. Um. Anyway, the chupacabra can seen can be seen in a lot of Paul uh popular media i want to say i want to say popular culture i don't know why but it's in popular culture yeah um there are movies about chupacabra a sci-fi channel has like two movies about it it's called one's called chupacabra dark seas (laughs) and the other one is called chupacabra versus the alamo oh lord (laughs) Uh, there's a movie there's another movie it came out in 2017 it's called chupacabra territory i'm done (laughs) oh my god there you know it it can be found wherever you want to if you if you look up if you watch something that has like cryptids in it i'm going to tell you there's a chupacabra (laughs) going to be in there Mm -hmm. uh but Chupacabra, wild dog or alien or not existent. If you be the guest, I don't know. You tell me. Tell me what you think. I already know it's a, it doesn't exist, but you know it's Chupacabra. You like to think about it. It might be an alien. They used to come down and like suck the blood of. It's almost like a vampire. Almost. It's like an alien vampire that sucks the blood of other animals. No? You don't like it? I mean... <laughs> eh. <laughs> Look. La Llorona pops up too much for me, okay? Every every time I go to search something, this is like that's like the first thing I look, I see. I'm like, I can do that, but I'm gonna do something else that everybody's not gonna like. It's cool. Yeah. It's um, it's something. It's a chupacabra. There's a, yeah, I mean, there's so many different pictures, and it's so weird and different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's no consistent story about this one. No, Mm-mm. it's just it's all around. Like everybody sees it. Like we even saw one up in PA, which is further north than anything. Well. It's in between Canada and true. Texas. There's Canada now. Okay, this is true too. You got Canada, and then you got PA. Just dogs running around. Oh, and it's funny because some people like claim that. Like, have you seen that hairless bear? Yes. Okay. Some people say that that's probably a chupacabra. That was a like when they first saw that picture of that like shaved or hairless bear. It was like that's a chupacabra. You know, um, that makes a lot of sense. They do look pretty scary. <laughs> they do like monsters. Uh, you ain't wrong about that. 
They are kind of scary. Oh, but, um, that's what I got for you today. Cryptid news. More Chupacabra talk. Good time. Thanks for listening. Yes, yes. We appreciate it very much. And uh, have a good weekend. I'll see you next week. More Manson, more cryptids. Yes. (laughs) 